0: August 12, 1985. Japan Airlines Flight 123, a Boeing 747SR, takes off from Tokyo's Haneda Airport at 6.12pm with 524 people on board. It's scheduled for a quick 75-minute flight to Osaka, about 240 miles away. 12 minutes after takeoff, as JAL 123 climbs to its cruising altitude of 24,000 feet, two explosions are felt on board. The crew declares an emergency and tries to return to Haneda, but they find the plane's controls unresponsive. 32 minutes later, the plane crashes 62 miles away from Haneda into Mount Ostaka, 520 out of the 524 people on board perish, resulting in the deadliest single aircraft accident in aviation history. What happened to JAL-123 that brought it out of the sky on such a routine flight? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, As always, I'm Gus, and once again, Chris. Hi. Hi. Uh, We're obviously a very new podcast. So we highly encourage you to tell your friends about us. Uh, you should subscribe, have them subscribe, and uh, everyone leave us some good reviews. Yes, thank you. If, Please you're, in- do. if you're interested <laughs> in this kind of uh, this kind of discussion, we have a, a a little more of a somber episode this week as compared to uh, to last week's episode. All right, all right. So, so uh, this this plane, Boeing seven forty seven. I'm sure you know even people who aren't. Terribly familiar with planes can probably recognize a 747. It's like one of the big planes it's got the four engines on it It's got mm-hmm. like the upstairs portion on the front of the plane Oh, t- the two wait the two stories. It's not the one that's two stories the oh. whole way ac- across that's an Airbus a 380 oh, Okay, this is just on the front It's got the, the second story. I've always wanted to be on a two-story fl- plane <laughs> you, can, you can make it happen now with 747 is pretty much retired out of service now the, the 747 had a very long career and, and in this particular instance a uh, 747 was being flown. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent now. Okay. We're, talk- we're talking about the plane. Um, anytime you, you're talking about a plane, like in this case the 747, there's different variants of the planes that are made. Uh, so anytime you get on a plane, there's there's different variants. They have different uh, passenger capacities, different cargo capacities, more fuel, whatnot. This particular plane was uh, a variant of the 747 that was called the 747 SR. This was a very specific version of the 747 that was created for the Japanese market. It was intended to move a lot of people, because normally a big plane like this, mm-hmm. you fly across an ocean. Yeah, yeah. This was intended to move a lot of people quickly between population centers in Japan. Gotcha. So um, this the seven forty sr has less fuel capacity but more cargo capacity. And can hold more people since it's just like in this case was flying from Tokyo to Osaka. You know. So that's why it's so many people. That's on why board. there's so many people on board. And that's why you know this ends up being the the single deadliest uh, uh, airplane incident. There there are. Worse ones that involve multiple planes. Maybe oh. we'll, maybe we'll talk about so one of those in the future. The worst single, single, plane. single plane. Yes, correct. Hmm. Uh, so on this flight, uh, flight one two three, it was being flown by Captain Masami Takahama, who was forty nine years old. He had uh, over twelve thousand hours of flight time, and in fact, he was a training instructor. And on this flight, he was uh, he was training someone. The first officer was actually flying the plane. First officer Yutaka Sasaki, and uh, he was on the verge of becoming a captain. This was like his final exam, basically. He had to fly the plane and the cap, uh, Masami Takahama was supervising him and handling the radios. This was uh, one of his final evaluation flights. And of course also, since this was 747, uh, they also had a flight engineer, uh, Hiroshi Fukuda, who uh, had almost 10,000 hours uh, flight time. So the engineer
1: is, they don't have engineers in
0: planes anymore, right? So this is just because it's back in the 80s? Correct. Um, You remember we talked in the Gimli Glider in last week's episode, Um, the 767 kind of phased out. The engineer, because a lot of those processes became automated. Yeah, uh, so this is
1: like right before they got rid of the engineers.
0: In, in in later iterations of the seven forty seven, there is no engineer anymore. Like the, I believe the latest passenger version that was released was a seven forty seven four hundred, and there's no engineer on that plane. Just a pilot and copilot, first officer. Anyway, this particular plane had been operating since 1974, so it was about 11 years old, and uh, it was it had, it had gone through. What they call 18,835 cycles. This is gonna be important later. A cycle consists of a takeoff, the cabin pressurization, and then a landing. Okay. Because, you know, when you're in... A basic flight. Right. Because, you know, when you're in a plane, when you're up uh, above the ground at at cruising altitude, there's not enough oxygen. Yeah. yeah. So they have to pressurize the cabin. You have to have air to be able to breathe. So flight one, two, three, it took off from Tokyo Haneda Airport, which, by the way, is one of my favorite airports in the world. If you ever get a chance, you should check out Haneda. It's, I would love to. It's, it's, actually really, it's actually a really cool airport. Uh, I've, only, I've only been there once, but I, I loved it. It was great. They have, again, tangent, there's a, uh, there's a hotel attached to Haneda that has a suite that has a 737 simulator built into it. Like a, so, you can f- pretend to be flying a Boeing 737 <laughs> at a hotel in Haneda Airport. I, I have not stayed there. I've gotten permission from my wife. Next time we go to Japan, I'm allowed to stay <laughs> <laughs> at the hotel <laughs> at Haneda. Uh, I've already. But, uh, there is no trip planned, but eventually but when it happens. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go there anyway. Okay, sorry. Uh, so flight one two three takes off from Tokyo Haneda Airport at about six twelve p.m. Uh, twelve minutes later, it's over Sagami Bay. And the aircraft underwent rapid decompression, which is, you know, the pressurized air. air, yeah, leaving. And then the little things drop. Right. The, the oxygen masks yeah. drop down. And um, so this affected, this depressurization affected the rear of the plane. And the ceiling around the rear bathrooms crumpled in a bit. And the fuselage was damaged. And they didn't know it at the time. But the vertical stabilizer, the tail, got blown off. The, it was gone. The, the thing that... Steers it, right? Right, essentially. It Wait. stabilizes it. Yeah, like that keeps it, it going uh, straight. Yeah, think yeah. it's like most, like, you can call it a rudder, right? The yeah. like tail fin. The vertical tail fin, not the horizontal ones. Gotcha. So someone on the ground took a photo, and you can see it. You know, it's, it's a really grainy photo, but you can see that the vertical stabilizer on this plane is missing. This is 12 minutes after takeoff, you know? Yeah. They're already pretty high up in the, in the air. So the crew declares an emergency, uh, and they request a return to Haneda. And uh, they started, dis- you know, they also started to descend while the air traffic control cleared them for a right-hand turn to 90 degrees heading. So, do you, do you know how headings work? Like, it's, if you imagine a compass, right? Yeah. Like, north up top, yeah. east, to the right, south, and west. Th- you know, a circle has 360 degrees in it. So, if you think of every cardinal direction as being 90 degrees. So, 90 degrees is east, 180 degrees is south, 270 degrees is west. Uh-huh. And so, you can think about all the headings that way. They were heading west, so they needed to turn, they needed to do a right-hand turn to go 90 degrees heading towards the east, towards uh, Oshima, which is an island they had just passed over. Uh, however, uh, Tokyo Control noticed that the plane only turned slightly to the right. So since they were going west, obviously they needed to do a 180-degree turn to go back east, but they only kind of— They're just like kind of wobbling in Yeah, the air. they kind of turned to a northwest direction, heading at like a, maybe around a 305 degree. What? It, what? It, so
1: do the pilot— do they know what's going on at this point or do they have any idea or are they just
0: something went wrong we gotta land right at this point they lose the hydraulic systems on the plane so uh, So hydraulics are what are used to control all the control surfaces of the plane Uh, like so anytime they move their control sticks or like you know what do you imagine them flying the plane yeah like they're not actually
1: they're not the one they're not using yeah i mean it's not their muscles
0: it's hydraulics that are doing all the work to control the plane.
1: It's like your power steer- steering in yeah, your car, because really like, I've, I've had that go out where my power steering went out and it became incredibly hard to turn because I was having to manually turn the wheels versus yes. you turn the steering wheel and then motors turn mm-hmm. the right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the old days or with small planes, it, you know, th- those controls could be hooked up to like cables and pulleys and you might actually be doing it yeah. yourself. But this is a giant plane, <laughs> like yeah, there's yeah, no there's way you're going <laughs> to be able to, to with with you, you know, there's no way a human could move uh, those control surfaces. So. Um, I believe on this 747 there's four hydraulic systems and uh, all of them Come together at the tail right there. Uh Uh-huh. Which is where the explosion happened and it broke and so all the they they lost hydraulic fluid So to answer your question all they're aware of is they've heard a couple of explosions and they can no longer control the plane That's a big one. That's 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 a problem (laughs) Uh, so the uh, the plane was banked 40 degrees right during the turn and You know uh, Captain Takahama ordered Sasaki to ease back on the bank. He turned Sasaki turned the yoke left and the plane didn't respond This is when they're realizing they yeah. don't have control uh, The flight engineer Fukuda he reported to them There was a loss in hydraulic pressure and you know They keep trying at the yoke and they realize that the planes become uncontrollable and they try to, to Order the plane to descend and like I said obviously without hydraulics. This is really difficult um, So 15 minutes after takeoff they realize and realized that the plane is still flying west Tokyo control contacts the flight again to confirm the emergency and for them to state the, and what you know, the nature of the emergency is. And it's not known for 100% whether or not this is the case, but it's theorized that the crew may have been suffering from hypoxia, which oh, is yeah, lack of, lack of lack of oxygen. You know, when you're at altitude, it's like climbing a mountain or when yeah. you go to a city that's a really high elevation. It's not as, as much oxygen there. Like you said, they, when you lose pressure in the plane, you got to put the, yeah. the mask on. We don't know if they, the crew actually put their mask on or not. Uh, the crew, you know, didn't respond to Tokyo control and the cockpit recordings show that both Takahama and Sasaki re- are repeatedly asking if the hydraulic pressure is lost without understanding the answer that they're getting from the engineer. Mm. So it's, it's theorized that maybe possibly yeah, It's hard to know also because of
1: the, the scariness of an explosion and just panic and
0: right. all that. But right. That could have been affecting them. But it seems based on what they were saying or what they were going through that th- there might, they may have been suffering from hypoxia. And this happened. Hypoxia can happen really fast. Um, Destin from Smarter Every Day does a, he has a great video on YouTube by the way uh, showing, demonstrating hypoxia and how, you know, someone can be telling you you need to put oxygen on or you're going to die and oh. still not understanding that you need to put it on. I have a, friend, I
1: have a friend who's a scuba diver uh, and he, he said that he was, there's a guy who was out there, a very experienced scuba diver went down too low and uh, had a problem with his like oxygen mass, took it off, like panicked or whatever pressure, panicked and then he was just like he was like, you need to do these things is just nothing just mm-hmm. like i don't yeah. understand i don't know
0: yeah. it's just yeah. once you don't have enough oxygen it's like you can't perform simple mental tasks and like you're talking about it's it's like, really scary and you can you can sit here that and i, I I'm, I'm emphasizing this because you can sit here and say like why did they just put their mask on it's, like, it's not that easy you, don't, yeah. you know yeah it's like you're someone who's super experienced basic stuff doesn't make sense right so uh the crew you know contacts tokyo control tells him the plane is uncontrollable so um they managed to turn a little more north back towards the shore. Remember, they were over the uh, Sagami Bay at the time. Uh, Tokyo Control asks if the crew could descend. And the captain, captain Takahama says uh, that they were and reported an altitude of 24,000 feet. However, the flight data recorder shows the plane was not descending. Instead, it was rising and falling uncontrollably. Again, maybe hypoxia. Maybe he's not understanding what's going on. Uh, because the plane had lost all hydraulic pressure, it entered a state of uh, what are called fugoid cycles that last about 90 seconds each. And what happens is the easiest way to think about a fugoid cycle is it's like a roller coaster, right? Mm -hmm. So the way a plane works is basically the faster the air is going over the wing, you know, the wing generates lift. Mm -hmm. So what was happening is the, the plane was climbing and it would slow down. And then, as it slowed down, the plane would nose down, uh-huh. and then gain speed, which would create more lift, lift and, and then, then so the plane would go up. So it's kind of like ru- either going up and down hills or riding a roller coaster. Yeah, and these cycles were lasting about ninety seconds each. And they' so it, were they pretty dramatic ups and downs? Like, um, I believe uh, it was they were going between twenty and twenty-four thousand feet. So, so four thousand feet in ninety seconds. That's a yeah, it's it's pretty significant. And then on top of this. The plane's also doing what are called Dutch Rolls because uh, they've lost their control surfaces. And a Dutch Roll is just where the plane's kind of like swaying, uh, kind of oh. swinging and yawing back and forth left to right. And uh, it's repeatedly—the it Dutch Roll cycles are lasting 12 seconds each, with the banks going as large as 50 degrees. So imagine, you know, 90 degrees would be straight up, 45 yeah. degrees is half of that, so like a little more than that. Uh, so these—so uh, it's rollercoastering and Dutch rolling or Fugoid Cycle and Dutch Rolling both at the same time. And uh, so for, and this went on for about 18 minutes. And they're just on this... Right. ...a ride with, with that they have no control over. Right. They're, they're really struggling to, uh, to try to control the plane. So the crew does manage to turn back towards Haneda by manipulating the thrust in the engines with very limited success. You know, this, 7, this 747 has four engines, two on the left, two on the right. So they're trying to alternate power to the left oh, and the right yeah, side yeah. to so try to turn the plane. Just using it with force instead Correct. of like... because that's, that's all yeah. they have. Uh, in fact, a similar technique uh, was used to control a DC-10 in the United 232 incident, which happens later in 1989. I think we're going to talk about that in a future episode, but that's one of, my, uh, one of my favorite incidents to talk about. So hopefully we'll talk about that in the future. Anyway, so they're, using, they're manipulating the thrust in the engines to try to turn the plane and see what they can do to control it. So, uh, so again, again, it's thought that the hypoxia was really starting to affect them more and more because they couldn't figure out how to descend and they were having trouble understanding the situation they were in. Uh, the cockpit voice recorder shows the flight engineer told the pilots to put on their masks, which they acknowledge, but... we don't know if they did or not. Yeah. Um, so eventually the pilots are able to control the plane a little bit, like, by adjusting the thrust on the engines. They're able to dampen the fugoid cycles a bit and stabilize their altitude. Uh, However, without, you know, the control surfaces, it's nearly impossible to counter those Dutch rolls because it's so fast. There's really not much they can do about that. So a bit after 640, which is about 28 minutes after takeoff, the crew lowered the landing gear, uh, hoping that they could decrease the airspeed and it would cause them to descend a bit. Uh, But this also resulted in an almost complete loss of the fugoid cycles and it dampened the Dutch rolls quite a bit. So So it helped. It helped. It helps quite a bit. But This also results in a decrease of the directional control that they were able to get by applying the thrust of the different engines. So 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 they started slowly losing control again. So once the gear was lowered, the flight engineer asks if he should lower the speed brakes, and he gets no response. The plane begins a 420 degree descending turn to the right, so it's like done more than a complete circle. And this is because the leftmost engine, number one, had a higher power setting than the other three. So wait, it's a complete circle, so it was in like— 420, de- so a circle's 360 degrees. So it's it, it like completely— won- No, not like flip, it's turning. Oh, oh okay, it's turning. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it turns 420 degrees, and uh, the turn starts at a 40-degree heading and ends at a 100-degree heading. So they're headed east, you know, kind of southeast, east-southeast. Uh, the plane descends from 22,400 feet to 17,000 feet, and, you know, the pilots reduce the thrust to near idle. The plane continues to descend to 13,500 feet and started a turn to the left. Now again, there's so many different factors they have to think about here. And what happens here is, uh, you know, once they get to a lower altitude, there's a bit more oxygen and the pilots start to communicate more. It's think that you think that... Yeah, that's, it's the, all the, adding up to the... Right. The hypoxia is maybe going away. Uh, they began to realize they're flying towards mountainous terrain to the west, despite their efforts to change direction. Uh, The plane descended below 7,000 feet and the captain ordered maximum thrust on the engines to try to climb above the mountains. Oh, no. At 648, you know, power is added and then reduced back to near idle uh, at 649. And then, however, this excited that fugoid cycle again. It caused the plane to pitch up and down, you know, as they're doing this engine power. The plane stall, briefly stalls at 8,000 feet. uh, And then the the crew starts discussing deploying the flaps, you know, and the flaps come out to try to slow down well it gives the plane it gives them a little more control over the plane at slower speeds it uh-huh. generates a more lift uh, at, at lower speeds but it also does increase some drag it can't slow them down are, just okay so right now
1: the the people in the in the passengers do they know what's going on or are they just freaking yeah, it's, out
0: it's i mean imagine if you were on this plane going up and down four thousand feet Things, every 90 seconds yeah. doing this dutch roll every 12 seconds um mm. they hurt the explosions too i uh. think actually their oxygen masks stopped giving oxygen. Like, cause it's not because it's this whole process takes so long. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not it's expected like they, you would need that much oxygen. God. Um, so the plane briefly stalls at 8,000 feet. They talk about uh, deploying the flaps. Flight engineer points out that they could actually lower the flaps uh, because they have, a, they have an alternate electrical system that they can use for that. It's not necessarily just hydraulics. So they lower the flaps five degrees and they actually gain some altitude. They rise to about 13,000 feet. How tall are these mountains? Uh, we're going to find out in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they switch over to Tokyo approach and at 6.54 they report that they're 45 miles northwest of Haneda Airport. Uh, but at this point they're flying away from Haneda. So at 6.55 they lower the flaps a little more to 10 degrees which causes the plane to start banking to the right. And a minute later they lower the flaps even more to 25 degrees which caused the plane to bank beyond 60 degrees to the right and the nose dropped. So, uh, despite their efforts, they tried to raise the flaps and recover. It was too late at this point. Uh, They reached a speed of about 390 miles an hour. uh, And at 656, while in a 40-degree bank, the plane clipped some trees on a ridge on the north-northwest side of Mount Makuni at 5,020 feet. Uh. To answer your question. Uh, They continued on this trajectory for a few seconds, clipped another ridge at 5,280 feet. Uh, The tail separates from the airframe. Three of the engines fly off of the plane and land uh, about 500 meters ahead. So the plane flips over on its back, explodes on another ridge about 570 meters away near Mount Takamagahara. That's it. Uh, hopefully, seen that mouthful. right. Uh, at 5,135 feet. So the total time from the bulkhead failure to crash was about 32 minutes. Oh man! And uh, yeah, so this plane crashes basically, you know, on a mount on a mountainside. And uh, so a it's forest. not near anyone. Mm-mm. And in fact, yeah, at this it's, point, it's night, right? Because it's like about seven o'clock. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's summer, so you know the the sun's out a little later. It's August, late summer. So there's still some sunlight, but you're right; it's it's approaching evening, and this plays into what happens next. Like this, this just continues. So, I have a question. Yeah, based upon what happened to the plane
1: with the explosion and the and the hydraulics going down, is there anything that the
0: that the pilots could have done, it's, or is it hard to say? It it probably I would say probably not. Uh, it, the aircraft was pretty much uncontrollable. It's possible. Um, they could have had a miracle and done it. Um, I, I, I don't know. The United 232, which I alluded to, is a similar incident where they lost hydraulic pressure, but they still had their vertical stabilizer. Mm. They were able to quote unquote land. Yeah. You know, some people survived that one. Uh, but it's, it, it's just such, there's so many variables going on and so many things to, to worry about all yeah. at once.
1: It does seem like there could have been a better scenario where they didn't, where they
0: crash landed somewhere better.
1: Right. right. I mean, but, that
0: wasn't on a mountain, but who knows if like... Yeah, the plane was largely uncontrollable. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> trying to find a specific place to land would have been very difficult. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, this, Japan's a very mountainous country. That's true, yeah. It's, it's, it would be tough to, uh, to try to find a spot to land at. All right, before we continue, I'd just like to mention our sponsor. Support for Black Box Down is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Like that. Uh, Most guys know uh, you've probably had an accident at one point or another while uh, manscaping, you know, something gets caught. Terrible, terrible. You don't want that to happen. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. Uh, The Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology, and manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. Uh, And when I tell you premium, it's premium. The battery lasts up to 90 minutes, so you can take a longer shave. Hopefully, you're not taking 90 minutes. Hopefully, you don't need to take advantage of that full battery. But uh, if you need 90 minutes, you got it. Uh, One of the coolest features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. They've also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. Uh, Let's not forget about the charging stand. You can show off your mower loud and proud because it's intelligently designed stand is a rapid charging dock powered by USB. So if you're listening to me speak right now uh, and you are one of the first people to hear about this life-changing product, I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. So trim that junk of yours. You can get 20% off and free shipping with code blackboxdown at manscaped.com. Your balls will definitely thank you. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code blackboxdown at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN. I want to spell that out just to be safe. M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. Just west of Tokyo is Yokota Air Base, which is the United States Air Force Base. Okay. Uh, and uh, in 1995, there's a navigator who was stationed at the base who said that the U.S. military had monitored the distress calls and was prepared for search and rescue, but they were called off by the Japanese authorities. What? A U.S. Air Force C-130 crew spots the crash site 20 minutes after the crash, uh, when there was still daylight out, and they raided the location to the Japanese and to Yokota Air Base. And uh, Yokota Air Base was on standby, but they were never called upon by the Japanese government to help out. But they were waiting. They're like, "Hey, we can help." Right. It's a, it's a little bit. It's a little disputed. You know the exact uh-huh. chain of events. You know some of the Japanese Self Defense Force people say that they were never contacted. Mm. So I mean I I don't know. You who who, no- who knows hearsay kind of right. thing. Yeah. But a Japanese Self-Defense Force Helicopter does spot the wreck after nightfall. But there's poor visibility and because of the terrain, they can't land, you know, it's it's a mountain. And uh, the pilot reports that there's no signs of survivors. So based on this, the the ground team doesn't go to the site. Instead, they they set up camp 39 miles away from the crash. They start working on making helicopter landing ramps. How do they just assume that there are no survivors? I I don't know. Uh, In fact, the next morning, uh, medical staff discovered that many of the victims had initially survived the crash but they died from the shock and the exposure uh, from being on the mountain overnight. Yeah. Uh, one doctor said that if the discovery had come 10 hours earlier, they could have found more survivors. Oh, man. So in the end, out of these 524 people on board, there were four survivors. How did they live, like, wh- how did they live, but no one else, I mean, is it, it just-, just. It was just pure luck. Um, one of the survivors recalled seeing the bright lights and hearing the helicopter. She said also that she could hear the screaming and moaning from other survivors that gradually died out over oh, the course my of the God. night. Uh, All four survivors were located in the tail section of the plane. Uh, Two of them were in the middle section of row 54. The third was in the right aisle seat in row 56. And the fourth was in the last row, row 60 in the middle section. So they were all in the tail, which had gotten separated uh, from the plane uh, during the crash. So out of 524 people, only four survived, which is crazy. I can't imagine how terrible that is to be one of those people who survived and then you die on a mountain because no oh, one no. comes to help you or to be one of the people who survived and you hear everyone else and it's like oh oh, yeah. and then and then you you hear a helicopter coming you know, right. oh my god we're, we're gonna, gonna get safe. saved yeah. and then it just disappears for what 10 hours is that what you said uh no overnight it was i think it was longer I, I i off the top of my head i want to say it was something like 18 hours before the they were able to reach the oh, crash man. site. i'm just thinking about like i think
1: back to like titanic or something that's like exactly the movie, what i thought too, where it's yeah. like you're like out in the water waiting freezing and then you see a boat and they're like hey hey and then they like see you as the ship and like nah no survivors let's go back right rose is just left <laughs> frozen on the you know it's like yeah oh. it's, it's uh
0: it's terrible terrible tragedy so you know what happened right what what led to this explosion on the plane yeah I think, you know, initially people start to wonder, you hear explosion on a plane, especially at this time, you wonder if, like, there's terrorism involved or or what the deal is. Uh, well, in fact, seven years before this incident, this exact 747 was involved in a tail strike uh, at Osaka International Airport upon landing. It was operating as uh, JEL-115 at the time. A tail swipe? Strike. Strike. So what happened is when the plane was coming in to land, you know, the, the plane uh-huh. is kind of, the nose is kind of pointed up uh, yeah. as you're coming in to land the nose was pointed too far up, so the tail hit the runway. Right. And then the plane landed. Plane landed fine. Um, This can happen on takeoff or landing. This particular tail strike was on landing. They were pitched up a little too high. Not too inherently dangerous, but, you know, of course, they have to inspect the aircraft and fix anything that broke. So it turns out that uh, the aft pressure bulkhead on this plane was damaged in the tail strike. And what what that part is, is that's the back part of the plane that contains all the pressurized air in the cabin. Aft, okay, you know, yeah, back yeah. pressure yeah, yeah. bulkhead. So it's like basically that little pressurized capsule yeah, yeah. that you're on in the plane, the back part was damaged in this mm. tail strike. Well, it turns out that the repair that was done on the aft pressure bulkhead did not adhere to the approved repair procedure. What they had to what they should have done probably was replace the entire aft pressure bulkhead. Yeah. But it's a big piece and there were shipping problems trying to get a piece that big from the US to Japan, Yeah. so they came up with a repair procedure where they were just going to replace the bottom half of the aft pressure bulkhead. So they would took out the broken bottom half, put a new bottom half on it, and they put three rows of rivets across uh, uh, a plate uh. to adhere it all together. So there's supposed to be one plate, they call it a splice plate, that's supposed to uh, hold all the, the, the sections together. Well, instead of using one splice plate, they used two splice plates that were parallel to the crack. Uh, and what happened was since they cut it into two plates it uh it brought the integrity down to seventy percent so so okay, so they, so it's like so basically there were two rows of plates and uh-huh. three rows of rivets, one row of rivet went through one plate and then the two rivets went through the other plate oh instead of being one plate together, yeah, 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 so they like they're
1: like they got a they got a hole and they put one piece of tape on the top and two on the bottom, essentially uh, instead of instead of like two and two
0: let me think uh that could work or if it's like if you have two pieces of paper uh-huh. and you want to like that are side by side and you like run through like kind of like staple them together yeah yeah and like except you don't do it quite right like you put a little bit of overlap yeah, yeah. But it's not enough overlap to keep it okay yeah, yeah that's okay i get it so they did you know the uh accident investigation commission calculated that because of the way that they did this repair that it would fail after about ten thousand pressurization cycles and the plane actually went through twelve thousand three hundred eighteen. Wait, they said that when they did the repair. They realized this afterwards. Oh, because oh, <laughs> no one knew the repair was done improperly. Oh, they didn't realize it until after you know after the crash, they find the aft pressure bulkhead and they see uh, what uh, had happened. So, so who's doing this repair? Is it just like the, the airline, or how it's, does that? It's happen? Boeing engineers and the airline who uh, worked together. So there there is some controversy about that. Uh-huh. We're going to get to that in a bit. So uh, what happens is, like I said, the, they calculated that it would fail after about ten thousand cycles. The plane actually went through twelve about twelve thousand three hundred cycles, and then uh, this tragedy happened. So a crack began to form in that bulkhead near one of those two rows of rivets, and then eventually, like the, these micro cracks join yeah. together and then make a bigger yeah. crack. Right? They just like fall apart. The the pressurized air leaves the the cabin, goes out of the tail, and that's what actually knocks the the vertical stabilizer off it's all this pressurized air escaping the cabin yeah yeah uh, unseats it
1: this th- this might be too uh, too much of a reference but uh in the movie um or book uh the martian mm-hmm. he has an issue where you know he's in this pressurized cabin and he goes in and out of it right. all the time and eventually it's pressurizing and depressurizing pressurizing oh it, right yeah and yeah. he does it so much it's just like that pro- it's like a suction and unrelease it just bursts Mm -hmm. and it's like this it sounds very similar where it's just like everyone you know you just use something so many times and it's like it's going to wear out it it, it wears out yeah
0: Yeah. you think of metal as being really strong but eventually you know through all this pressure like there's a bunch of force put on it it's going to fatigue and it needs to be inspected and worked on so you know after this disaster happens the Japanese public confidence in Japan Airlines falls Uh, there's rumors that Boeing admitted this is what you were talking about there's rumors that Boeing admitted fault in order to cover up the airline inspection procedure to protect the airline. Uh hmm. Right. It's like so you really don't know who's maybe no one is 100% at fault. But Boeing does take the the blame, the blame. on this one. So why they you, they
1: would admit fault just to save the airline because it's better and is that
0: Because the airline buys their planes. And they that, want Yeah, yeah. This is an underlying issue we're we're probably going to talk about repeatedly over the course of this podcast is Boeing can't blame an airline because then that airline will stop buying their planes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people will stop flying. Right. Because so they'll be like, oh, I don't want that airline. Yeah. Right. And then, and you know, we're kind of seeing that with the 737 MAX currently. Like, everyone, even people who don't know anything about planes know, oh, that's the plane that crashes. I don't want to fly on that yeah. plane. So it's, it's, you know, it's a very complicated thing. But um, there's rumors that Boeing admits the fault just to try to protect Japan Airlines. Uh, it's so bad that domestic travel in Japan falls by 25%, which is crazy that's, that's a lot a lot mm-hmm. uh, japan airlines pays about 780 million yen uh, as condolence money without admitting liability uh the the Jap- japan airlines president Yasumoto uh, yasamoto takagi he resigns uh maintenance manager hiro tomegana kills himself to atone for oh the my incident God. and uh, susumu tajima who's an engineer who inspected and cleared the aircraft as flight worthy also committed suicide due to difficulties at work so i mean People are torn up over this. It's is, a, it's a huge it's a huge ordeal. Is, uh, is that more common
1: culturally in Japan for, for 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 I guess it's like if you do something
0: wrong for to decide to kill yourself or is that I don't I don't know. I mean I I, I, I maybe I I can I I, I, w- I was going to say I can't imagine someone doing that here in the US, but I mean imagine I'm sure, if yeah. imagine if you did something you, you fucked up and 520 people died because of something you did. Not that you're responsible for anybody. here at work, <laughs> but imagine if your job was something you, like and this and you messed and, up. Yeah, and five, it's I mean that's that's gotta mess with your head. Yeah, it's it's gotta really really weigh uh, heavily on you. Uh, Japan Airlines eventually retires this flight number uh, 123 on September 1st, 1985. Uh, and in fact, in the mid 90s, the 747s on this route were replaced by 767s and seven triple sevens, like we were talking about earlier. And uh, 747s were retired entirely from that fleet on March 2nd, 2011. Uh, like I said, it's, it's actually really kind of difficult to find a 747 that's still in operation these days. Uh, and in 2009, uh, some stairs were installed on the facilities there uh, in order to help visitors gain access to the crash site. And every year, families of the victims hold an annual memorial uh, near the oh, crash man. site out there. Uh, and in 2006, the Safety Promotion Center, they opened a building in Haneda Airport uh, for training purposes to alert employees to the importance of airline safety and personal responsibility to ensure safety. It's open to the public. Uh, you, I guess you can make an appointment like two months ahead of time if you want to visit that. And the daughter of Captain uh, Takahama, mm-hmm. Yoko Takahama, became a, later became a flight attendant for Japan Airlines. She was in high school at the time this accident happened. And uh, she, I guess, wanted to pursue aviation. That's, man. And uh, uh, loves just like her father. But I, yeah, this is the single deadliest uh, incident. Man. The single deadliest Single aircraft incident? This is the deadliest single aircraft yeah. incident in history. So uh, we started out you know, the podcast with uh, the Gimli Glider, which is a feel good this is not a feel story. Good uh, yeah, and then we immediately come to this one. But uh, that's that. That's Japan Airlines Flight 123. Um, I highly encourage people, if you're interested about it, to look up a, a photo of that uh, plane of Japan Airlines 123 without a tail fin. It's really, really something else. Yeah. Man. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Uh, make sure you come back next week where we'll have an equally depressing yeah. <laughs> incident to talk about. We'll uh, sprinkle, we'll sprinkle some, uh, some, some good ones in there every now and then. Yeah. If, uh, if you enjoyed this, make sure you uh, tell a friend, have them uh, subscribe as well. Yeah. Uh, leave us a review. Yes, please leave, leave us a review. Leave us a positive like review. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we'll be back next week with, uh, with another episode.